Well, good evening. It's good to have you to be with us this evening. Here we are, the first Sunday evening in August already. In the morning, the yellow school buses go by, and the kids are back in school, and our college kids are getting ready to leave to go to campuses, and in the stores, it's back-to-school supplies, and if you go to Hobby Lobby, it's Christmas already. And so uh, I wanted this evening to talk to you about finishing strong. We want to keep our theme before us as we keep presenting different classes and lessons before us this uh, year. And our theme this year is to finish what was started. Starting things is easy. A lot of people start a book, start going back to school. They start a budget. They start losing weight. They start this or they start that, all kinds of projects. Some begin their journey in Jesus. But the finishing part is what's difficult. And there are always setbacks, there's always storms, there's distractions that bog us down, and Satan is always whispering in our ear, you can't do this, this is too hard, you need to take the easy route and simply quit. A lot of people start but they don't finish. There's a phenomenon called loser's limp. I'm sure there's a medical term for this. I got it once in high school. And here's how it works. When I was in high school, I did the high jump. Five steps and you jump. Jump as high as you can jump. And I was pretty good at that. But we had one event one time when our distant runner didn't show up. And so the coach turned to me and said, Roger, you're running the 880 or 45 miles. I don't know what it was. it was. It was forever. I do five steps and I jump. That's what I do. So I started this race. Within 10 seconds, I was hopelessly in last place. And this is where loser's limp comes in because you don't want to be real embarrassed. And you got, a, you got some pride about you. And somehow you got to save face. And so when the guy in front of you, second to last, you can't even see him. You realize they may lock the doors and turn off the lights, and I'm still running. So what you do is you fall down, and you roll a few times, and you grab your ankle, you grab your calf, and all of a sudden all the coaches run. And, and, and you just start, oh, oh. And all of a sudden, oh, it's understood. I know why you, you were in last place, because you, you twisted your ankle. You had a cramp in your calf. Everybody understands, because you had loser's limp. And it's not for real, but you do that. Now, sometimes in life, we have spiritual loser's limp. And what we do is instead of holding our calf or our ankle, we hold on to some excuse, or we hold on to some circumstance and we say, that's why I can't do what God tells me to do, because I got this loser limp problem. We remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul said in verse 7, the three I haves, he said, I have kept the faith, I have finished the course, I have fought the good fight. Well, that's the concept of finishing. And so this evening, if you've got your Bible, we're going to look at an Old Testament story about somebody who really didn't start off well, but he finished strong. And that's what we want to see. You see, when you get up to the judgment seat, there's no second place. Either you're going to make it to heaven or you're not. 
There's no t-shirts that are consolation prizes. Either you make it or you don't. And so it behooves us to understand that I need to finish strong. And Satan's going to throw every obstacle out there so I can't finish. And he's going to put things before my eyes that says, you know what? That is so far away. That's 45 miles away. And I do five steps and jump. That's all I do. And you just quit. And we think about through the years. We think about all the congregations we've been part of. How many people started off being Christians, but they quit. And so we have to finish strong. And so our study tonight comes from the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 33. It's about King Manasseh. King Manasseh was one of the late kings in Judah. And he has a fascinating, sad story, but he finishes strong. As we begin this, we need to see that there are two remarkable things about Manasseh. First of all, he's named after Joseph's oldest son, Manasseh. Those of you who are good Bible students, you remember that when the land was divided up among the tribes, there was always that half-tribe of Manasseh and half-tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons. Manasseh was the oldest, okay? And so he carries that name, which is very important. But more important than that is his father was Hezekiah, the great, great reformer of Judah. Hezekiah was the one who they found the book in the temple, and they restored things and got things back. He tore down the idols. So great was Hezekiah. When you read about him, they refer to David, David as his father. But David wasn't his father. There are generations between David and Hezekiah, but they, they link him to that because he was faithful like Hezekiah. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment because what a great beginning. To have a father, to grow up in a home where Hezekiah is your father. Now, we grab one verse, and then we're going to read some passages here, so you'll need your Bible open there. But in verse 9 of, of our text, it says that he did more evil than the nations God destroyed. Let's read this, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 9. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now just park it there for a moment. The nations God destroyed were pagan. They were idolaters. They did not have the law of God. They were not close to following God. This is supposed to be one of God's sons. This is supposed to be a follower of Israel. And he led the nation into doing more harm. Let's read, let's read some examples. Let's go down to verse 33. Or excuse me, verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 33. This talks about Manasseh. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals, made Asherim, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Verse 4. He built altars. Notice, don't miss this two-letter word. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Another word for the house of the Lord is the temple. He's bringing in idolatrous altars into the temple, of which the Lord said, my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts, where? Of the house of the Lord. 
He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. What that means was child sacrifices. And he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritualists. And if you were to chase those words in the Old Testament, every single one was considered wrong by God, and they were to be put to death. Every single one of them. But this king is practicing them. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Thus he put carved image of the idol, which he made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen for all the tribes, I will be put my name forever. Then down verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So this is who this king is. Now, again, he's not somebody out there who would say, well, he just didn't know any better. He knew better. He knew better because of who his dad is. He knows better because of who he is. He's one of the people of God. You've got the law of God, verses after verses after verses, prophet after prophet would talk about those very things that he was doing that was wrong. And so God will bring him down. He shed much, in 2 Kings' account of this, says he shed much blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Innocent blood of who? His own people. His own people. And so that's how this guy is. And so God brings in the Assyrians. And in the great passage here, there's my little three stooges on the side. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But he says, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with chains, bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Interesting, it's the Assyrians that capture him, but they take him to Babylon. Now that phrase, hooks, what that really means is it's like tongs in your nose. And they're just dragging him along. And they bring them to a foreign country. And here's the mighty king of Judah, there to be laughed at, humiliated, to mock and make fun of. And there he is. And God has done this because this man is simply not following the way of the Lord. While in captivity, he humbles himself. Let's, let's go back to our context now and read verse 12. Verse 12 says, When he was in distress... He entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his treaty and heard his supplications. The he there is God and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. We continue on verse 13. Uh, or excuse me, verse 14. Now after this, he built the outer wall of the city. Down here in verse 15, he removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. Verse 16, he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. What he's doing is he's going back and taking everything away that he once had done. Now, those of you that teach our young kids, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, where do you put Manasseh? Is he a good king? Or is he one of the bad kings? Started off pretty bad, didn't he? But he finished strong. And that's what we want you to see. In your New Testament, now let's look at a couple other examples in our New Testament. In the book of Luke, chapter 23, we think about, as Jason talked this morning, about Jesus on the cross and his death. We've got two thieves. And as the account begins, both thieves are mocking Jesus. Both of them are kind of ridiculing Jesus. 
but one has a change of heart. And what changes his heart is how Jesus is dying. Most people, when they were on the cross, they'd offer the world. I'll give you all my money, all my house. Get me off of here. But more than that, most of them would just start cussing and cussing and cussing because they were dying. They'd cuss Rome. They'd cuss Caesar. They'd cuss the, the, the guards. They'd cuss anybody in sight because I'm dying and I'm mad and I can't get out of this. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And he was seeing things like he'd never seen before. And so when you look in Luke 23 and verse 42 about this penitent thief. Now, he started off bad. He's a rebel. He's insurrectionist. He's being executed by the government because of his crimes. This was not simply shoplifting. This is not having too many parking tickets. You did something, and you're going to be executed by the state. And that's what's taking place. But in verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. There's somebody who started off wrong, but he finished strong. Finishing strong. That's what we want to talk about this evening. Maybe you haven't started off well. Maybe after you were baptized, it just kind of fizzled out. And maybe you've been in the wilderness. Maybe you haven't really been where you should be. Maybe you let discouragement. Maybe you've lived with loser's lip way too long. And this evening, what I want to do is share with you four simple lessons from, his, from uh, Manasseh here that ought to help us. Number one, we need to see, don't waste great opportunities. That's what he did. Some of you did not have the opportunity of growing up with a mom and dad. Maybe there was a divorce in your family. Maybe you never knew your dad. Maybe there was a death. Some of you may have grown up in homes where one or both of your parents were not Christians. Maybe they drank more than they prayed. Maybe they allowed you to do anything, say anything, go anywhere, no rules whatsoever. But then some of us, some of us had godly parents, and they made us tell them where were you going to go. And if you're going to go to point A, you don't go to point B, then point A. You had to go to point A. And when you said you're going to be back at 11 o'clock, 11.01, your phone's being called. Where are you? You're supposed to be back here. And you knew every Sunday, every Sunday it wasn't a coin flip. Well, do we go to the lake? Do we go over here? You knew every Sunday where you were going, and you were going to worship services. Certain words were not allowed in the house. Certain people were not allowed in the house. If there was nothing good on TV, you turned the thing off. That was the concept. And what an advantage that is. You grew up knowing stories about Adam and Eve and Noah and the flood and Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know those stories as well as anybody knew those stories because you had that advantage. Think about Manasseh here growing up in a home of Hezekiah. We're getting back to God. We're getting back to the sacrifices God wants us to do. We're purging this whole land of all the altars, all the foreign gods. They're out of this place. And you grow up with that atmosphere, deep, deep reverence for God. But what he did, very similar to the prodigal in Luke 15, was, I want nothing to do with that. It is disturbing 
beyond words when some of our young people do not appreciate what you have. Now, I'm going to speak harshly to our young people to understand this. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of young Christians all over this planet would love to be in, in your shoes. I would love to have parents like your parents. I would love to be in a congregation like this congregation. I would love to have the opportunities you have. A lot of people struggle because every Sunday is it we go to church or we don't go to church. I myself grew up in a home where we only went Sunday morning only. We did not go Wednesday night. We did not go to gospel meetings. I started off preaching, not knowing half the stories in the Bible. I sit and hear these kids talking about things. I said, well, in the world, I've never read that before. And understand what a disadvantage I had. And so when we think about this, one of the great lessons we see here is don't waste golden moments. What a great opportunity Manasseh had. What a great opportunity you have. We have several within this congregation who are preaching every Sunday. If it's not me and Jason here, it's Larry or Shannon somewhere else. It's Brother Langford somewhere else. They're out preaching. And to think, I've got a question. Somebody at school asked me this, and I don't know how to answer that. What a gold mine of people to talk to. What a gold mine of people to say, you know, I've got this co-worker, and they're just driving me nuts. I want to put a pencil in their eye. I know God doesn't want me to do that. What should I do? Well, talk to somebody. Open the Bible up. Look at some answers. And you see, here was somebody that wasted a golden moment. You can imagine how beautiful Judah would have been had Manasseh followed in his father's steps, how he could take it to the next level of spirituality. Instead, he took him backwards. Second lesson we learn here, and that is with every choice we make, there are consequences that follow. If you take hold of these opportunities, there's consequences. If you don't take hold of these opportunities, there are consequences. For Manasseh, it was being led away and as a loser to a foreign land. He's led away in chains. He's led away with a hook in his nose. Where were his gods? All those altars he built. All those foreign gods, his spiritualists, his mediums, all those, where were they? When he's being led away in chains, why ain't you helping me? Because they were worthless and useless, and he found that out. They didn't protect him. They didn't help him. And he realized he had no army to come rescue him. The only thing he had was a God of heaven. In Luke chapter 15 I want you to notice verse 16 as we think about that prodigal. Again, there's a lot of similarities between Manasseh and the prodigal. But in Luke 15 and verse 16, we remember the story. The prodigal leaves house with a pocket full of money. He goes out and wastes everything. He becomes uh, destitute. There's a famine. He works with a farmer to feed his pigs. Verse 16 says, and he was longing to fill his stomachs with the pods that the swine were eating. Notice this. And no one was giving him anything. Not even the farmer he was working for. The farmer gave food for the pigs, but no food for the prodigal. Every choice you make has consequences. Good ones 
or bad ones. And we need to see, as we develop this lesson, how important that is. Third thing we learn here, and that is God is gracious and God is forgiving. God heard the prayer of Manasseh. God felt compassion for him. The psalmist would say in Psalms 51, verse 17, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Manasseh was given a second chance. The prodigal was given a second chance. You were given a second chance. I was given a second chance. And that's the God that we love and serve so much. And what we see from this is, what do you know? Now, when Manasseh was in that foreign country, chained with chains and a hook in his nose, what did he know? Well, I know the Bible's right. And I know my God is powerful. My God has stopped stop all kinds of storms. My God has parted oceans. My God can do anything. All these other gods I've been, been kind of fed this false story are worthless. And so what is it that you know? Jesus said in John chapter 8, 31 and 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. What did the prodigal learn? What did the prodigal know when he was feeding pigs? And he was so hungry, nobody was given the main thing. He knew that my father back at home was a generous man. He, he is so generous that the servants have plenty to eat. I am a son starving. He knew that. And so as you go on in life, and Satan throws you all these curveballs, and there's all these obstacles, and all these things try to trip you, what is it you know? You know God's always right. You know the Bible's always true. You know God is forgiving. You know where you belong. You know what you need to do. That helps you. That helps you to finish. Secondly, with this, who surrounds you? That's so important. You know, when we, when we look in 2 Chronicles 33 and we read about Hezekiah coming back to Jerusalem, getting a second chance, tearing down all the altars and all the idols he built, it still says, yet the nation still served him. He had led them away, and now the nation wasn't coming back. So, so get good people in your life. Get people who are headed to heaven in your life. Those are the people you need. We call that fellowship. And whether you're young or you're old, you need that. That's one of the blessings of our koinonia connections, is that we're getting young and old, this person and that person. We're getting them together, and you're learning each other's story. And you're learning, hey, I didn't know that about you. And I see you every Sunday, and I didn't know this about you. And what it does is it just opens up your eyes to how important it is to have great people in my life. In your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans 16. That's really what Romans 16 is about. Oftentimes, when we get to the end of Paul's letters, we just see all these names, and we just kind of say, well, let's just skip this, go on to the next book of the Bible. But all these names are in there for a reason. And what we see, for instance, in Romans 16, verse 3, we, it says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus, who for my life risked their necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles. He'll talk about, verse 6, Mary, who's worked hard for you. He talks about somebody in verse 8, who's beloved. Verse 9, someone who's a fellow worker. All through this, Paul's making a list. These are people who are important to me. Have you ever made a list like that? Spiritually, who's important to you? And have you ever prayed about them? That's what Paul's doing here. 
How do I finish strong? I got to surround myself with incredible, incredible godly people. That's how I do that. Number three, in this regard, you must do things differently. You see, had Manasseh come back home, got the hook out of his nose, and said, well, I'm back. Let's keep building these altars. Well, things would not turn out right. He realized what I did didn't work. What I did was wrong. So I've got to do things differently. And so when I've been in the wilderness, when I've been in the land of discouragement, when things are just kind of beating me down, I've got to realize I've got to do things differently. Sometimes it's a very simple thing. Like I'm going to sit somewhere else in this building. That may shock some people. You may sit down and somebody may say, what are you doing sitting over there? You're upsetting the balance of the universe. But sometimes just that different perspective will help you. That different crowd around you will help you. Sometimes it's just nothing more than I'm going to start my day with prayer. I'm going to start my day with a passage. I've got to do something different. Because if I keep doing what I've done, I'm always going to get what I've gotten. And what I got was being led away in chains to Babylon. That's what I got. So when I come back home, I've got to do things differently. And so do we. And then the fourth lesson, as we think about this, is we must allow people to change. And that's what's so interesting about Manasseh. I mean, if we, if we were to list on the screen here, here's the good kings of Judah, here's the bad kings, and here's Manasseh. Which side are you going to put them on? Some people will only hang on to the he put altars in the temple of God. I can never, ever forget that. God did. You look at passages like Hebrews 11, and there God lists Samson. And when you read about Samson in your Bible, his very first words he ever speaks in the Bible is, I saw a woman. And that got him in trouble. And then all through Samson's life, he's hanging out with the Philistines, and he gets in trouble after trouble after trouble until he finishes strong. Now, you and I, if we were writing Hebrews 11, we'd probably say, Samson, eh. But God put him in there. See that? And we may look at somebody in this congregation and say, ah. but the God of heaven may say, he's in my book. I put him there. And so Manasseh reminds me of a story we've talked about recently by a man by the name of Jimmy, a murderer executed by the state of Alabama, but someone who became a believer and is heaven bound. And so how you finish is so important. Finish strong. Have you lost your bearing? Have you lost your side? It's important that we understand the simple principles of finishing strong. Maybe your life is like a Manasseh. Maybe you spent a long time chasing the wrong things in life. Don't let that be your story. Manasseh didn't let it be his story. He continued back to God doing the things of God. Well, I want to end this evening by reading a little, a little prayer. This is by my favorite writer named Bob Moorhead. It's called The Prayer of Possession. He says, God, I do, not want you to, I do not want to possess you. I want you to possess me. Strip me, Lord, of all the spiritual junk I've accumulated that isn't conductive to your calls. Peel away from my life, O oh Lord, layers of meaningless tradition, of unproductive habits, of all that's ungodly and unfitting. Clear my agenda, O oh Lord, from all that's mundane and meaningless and replace it with divine appointments. 
Clear my calendar, Lord, of all and any appointments that won't enhance your kingdom, further your gospel, or glorify your name. Oh, Lord, I want my schedule to be planned by you. Let's stop there for a moment. Can you imagine that? You get out your phone. Here's what I got to do tomorrow. Got to do this. What if the Lord grabbed your phone? Here's what your schedule is tomorrow. You're starting with this. You're starting with this. May help us finish strong. Lord, I want my schedule to be planned by you. Remove from my mind all that is low, lewd, and lethargic, and limiting. Recharge my energy with power that is divine. Oh, Lord, I stand before you today in neutral, asking that you shift me into high or low or reverse, but never park. Put your hand on the wheel, turn me left or turn me right. Place your hand upon my eyes and cause me to see the need close at hand or far away. I am yours, O Lord, and I relinquish the title deed of my life anew and welcome you as the new owner and operator. Amen. Paul would simply say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Finish strong. That's what it's all about. So this evening, if we can help you in any way, never been baptized, you need to do that. If maybe you're not hitting on all cylinders, let's get together and talk about that. Let's see how we can finish strong. Does no good to say at one time you were strong, one time you were on the road to heaven, one time you were journeying with Jesus, but you got loser's limp and you quit. That does no good. So if we can help you in any way, won't you come as we stand, as we sing.